you need to get your mind right. That's what my boys' football coach says to them as they're getting ready to play a game. Have you guys heard that comment in sports? You need to get your mind right. I think it's good counsel for sports because sports is not, they're not simply physical. It's, it's also a, a mental exercise. We all know how important attitude is um, in all areas of life. So a call to get your mind right is a call to get your attitude right. But it's more than that. It's also a call to get focused. And if you think of middle school boys playing football, that is something that their coach really wants them to do. They've got their mind on other things. So get your mind right means focus. Don't be distracted. But I think there's something else that's involved in the call to get your mind right. It is to visualize in your mind's eye a good game. A good game where you're making good decisions and making good plays. And football, maybe it's making that important block or making that important tackle, catching that pass, throwing that pass, whatever it may be, fixing in your mind's eye ahead of time what it is you want to see when it's game time. This applies not only to sports, but to a number of different areas in life. And I want to argue that in Romans 12, which is our passage this morning, what Paul is saying to the church is you need to get your mind right. We had some things happen with our preaching schedule, Um, uh, nothing bad, just some adjustments. And so we had a free week this week before we launched back in to the book of Matthew. And so I thought this chapter would be appropriate for us. And I want to share with you why I thought it would be appropriate for us here in a minute. But first, let me just set the stage for Romans 12. Romans 12 is a call to get our mind right, but before there is this focus on the mind, there is a focus on God's mercy. The first 11 chapters of the book of Romans are a basic, um, I mean, an elaborate exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of God's grace His mercy, as Paul talks about in chapter 12, verse 1, that is shown to us. Once we get to chapter 12, there's a shift in that we are now being called to live in light of that mercy. We are called to go forth with an eye to the grace of God that has gone before us. I don't have time to unpack all of the riches of God's grace to us. The book of Romans spends 11 chapters on it. But I still want you to be aware that that is the context from which Paul launches into these commands in chapter 12. Just some brief reminders of what Romans is about in terms of grace. We have been justified through faith, in Jesus Christ, by grace, 
you have been saved. We are right in God's eyes. Or as Jeremy Krause, who's the speaker at the Focus Retreat, our former youth pastor, said yesterday morning, I was at one of the sessions, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All sorts of things like that in the first 11 chapters of Romans that speak of the grace of God, the mercy of God that has been given to the people of God. So now the call is to live in light of that mercy. And how are we to live in light of this mercy? We are called, as verse 1 says, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. The way I put it to those who took the child dedication class last week um, is that our lives, these lives of worship, we are called to give all that we have in every area of life to God. That is the basic charter for the Christian life. Or Think of the greatest commandment. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, with everything that we have, with everything that we've got in every area of life. It is a comprehensive call to a consecrated life in view of the amazing grace that has been lavished upon us in Jesus Christ. But what does this look like to offer all that we have to God in all of life? How do we do it specifically? Well, Paul goes on to tell us in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You get that? By the renewal of your mind that by testing you may be able to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There it is. If we want to worship God, which is what we're called to do with all that we have in every area of life, the first thing we need to do, or the ongoing thing that we need to do, is to get our mind right. The way we live transformed lives for God is through the renewing of our minds according to God's will. According specifically, do you want to know what the will of God is? It's in God's Word. So how how will our minds be renewed? It's through hearing from God's Word. Our minds are changed in that way. But I want you to get something very critical at the outset of this sermon. Paul is not simply calling for exercising your mental muscles with greater exertion. He's not calling you to be smarter or necessarily to think harder, although some of us could benefit from that. What he is describing here is a different way of looking at the world. When he says the renewal of your mind, it's your mind's eyes. It's the way you see 
the world. He is calling us to a different vision for life, a life not conformed to the pattern of this world, but one that is transformed by the very word of God. Paul wants us to see what the Christian life looks like. What God's will is, is laid out in his word. What is good, so that we can get about doing good. And the first area he calls us to get our mind right is in regard to the church. Relationships in the church. This shouldn't surprise us. Again, basic Christianity. Love God, love neighbor. If you love God, it will be seen in your love for your neighbor. If you worship God, it will be seen in your service to your neighbor. But when we think about loving our neighbor, the priority in the scripture is our love for other people within the church. And that's why I chose this passage. In January, we spent five weeks talking about the means of grace. If you weren't with us, in short, the means of grace are the ways that God works to change us into the image of Christ. So how are we going to do ministry? Well, again, we don't have to come up with it on our own. It's been given to us in the scriptures. We give ourselves to the word, to prayer, and to things like baptism and the Lord's Supper. We've been given ministry methods, as it were. These are the means by which we are nourished in the faith. But this is the point I want to make this morning. We need more than nourishment if we want to grow up as mature disciples of Jesus Christ. We also need an environment of nurture. Nourishment, yes, but nurture as well. I think the Bible teaches us. Think of Ephesians 6.4, which I shared with the parents at the child dedication class last week as well. What does it say? Fathers, bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The admonition is the instruction. It is the content of the Word of God. It is the content of the Gospel. And that matters. That is the nutrition that we need. But we also need nurture, a nurturing environment. Maybe I could put it this way. We not only need the logos of the Word of God, we also need the ethos of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or this way, we not only need the Word of life, but we need a way to live our life together in the body of Christ. We are called to speak the truth in love, would be another way to put it. We need the truth of the gospel, the means of grace, but we need those delivered in an environment of love. Love is the manner in which we minister the truth of the gospel. So in January, we learned about ministry means, ministry methods, what I think we also need, and what I want to talk about this morning from Romans 12, is that we also need ministry manners. We need an environment 
a culture that is conducive to growth. How do children grow up to be healthy adults? Is it simply through feeding them, keeping them safe? No, it's through nurture and care. We need the same in the church. Romans 12, Paul gives us a way of looking at the church that it should inform a new way of living in the church. In other words, he calls us to get our mind right. So a little bit of a lengthy introduction. Let's now read this passage together. If you would please stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read through verse 16. For the sake of time, I'm not going to be able to cover that last section. He says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, that is, all of your life, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one, one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The main message this morning is we need to get our mind right when we think about the church. We need a renewed vision for the church so that we can have a renewed culture in the church which is conducive to growth. In order to get our minds right, we need two paradigm shifts, two different ways of thinking. The first is we need to see our unity 
in the body. <clears throat> this comes out in verses 3 to 8. In verse 3, Paul says, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. How many times is the word think used there? Three times, right? Actually, the word that's translated as sober judgment is the same root word as the other. So in the Greek, it's four times right there. Hopefully it's clear to you that what Paul is doing here is calling us to get our mind right using language that refers to the mind. A mind conformed to the world is a mind that thinks more highly of himself than he ought to think. A mind that is transformed and that is renewed is a mind that thinks with sober judgment or esteems oneself appropriately. But what will lead to this way of thinking? Verses five, 4 and 5 tell us why we should think of ourselves with sober judgment. It's because if we are in Christ, we are all one body. And I love the way that he goes on to describe that. And individually, members one of another. The church is one body. We are unified. I want you to notice that he is not here saying become one body or pursue unity. He's going to do that later. He's not doing that here. Here he is saying we are one body. If we are in Christ, there is a relational reality that has come into being that we are saved into the body of Christ. That's real. We may not see it that way, but we are being invited to see it that way because it is what is true. Like a human body, which has many body parts, there are many members in the church, and each member has a different function, but it's not as though all of those body parts are just laying around the room. They all belong to one another. And as Paul goes on to describe in a place like 1 Corinthians 12, we have to come to see that which is true, which each part of the body is indispensable to the whole. Abdel Gonzalez was sharing this week, I had forgotten about this, but his dad lost part of his leg due to cancer. He's never been the same. When you lose a part of your body, it affects the whole. It not only affects the way he walks, it affects all sorts of things in his life. We need to come to see that we are in fact one body and that each member in the body is indispensable. Only when we get our mind around that will we stop thinking so highly of ourselves and think of ourselves as a part of the whole with a proper perspective. This idea is repeated or even advanced in verse 16. We can't see it in the English but it's there in the original Greek. Notice the command to live in harmony with one another, the command to not be haughty, 
but associate with the lowly, the command to never be wise in your own sight, all three of those verbs have the same root word as the one back in verse 3 for think. So the beginning of this section that we're reading, the end of this section, it has all of these mind words, all of these thinking words. He begins by saying, this is true. We are one body. We are unified. Then he ends here by saying, go after that unity. Pursue harmony in the body. Don't be haughty. Don't be wise in your own eyes, but esteem others. When you look at the church, what do you see? I mean, really, I'm not talking about I'm not talking about the universal church. That's one of the big mistakes in modern evangelicalism. When we think about the church, we think of all believers in all places at all times, and that is a reality. But when the New Testament speaks of the church, let me just be real precise, 87 of the 114 times the word ecclesia is used in the New Testament, it's referring to the local church. So when I say when you think of the church, what do you think of? I'm talking about this one. Look around. What do you see? Young and old. A few less young today because they're at the focus retreat, but young and old. Rich and poor. Male and female. Black and white. Asian and Hispanic and Middle Eastern. There is a great diversity within this church. We should see that. We should celebrate that. But we should see beyond that to that which is also true, that in the midst of this diversity, we also have unity. It's real. If we are in Christ, we are in His body. And He is the head of the church. But there's not only a diversity of types of people or different stages of life or different walks of life in the church. There is also a wide variety of gifts that God has bestowed upon people in the church. And those gifts, Paul says, need to be put to use within the body for building up the body. I'm not going to walk through each of the gifts this morning. I want to deal with Paul's larger point, which is to say, if you have your mind right, you won't see yourself more highly than you ought to see yourself. You won't see your gifts as more important than others. And conversely, you won't see your gifts as less important than others, but indispensable and therefore to be put to use in building up the body. But the main thing I want to draw your attention to is that it's not just that you serve, it's how you serve. It's about your desire, your heart, not just that you use your gifts, but how you use your gifts. Notice in verse 8, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy, With cheerfulness. 
all of these qualities, qualitative measures, will only take place if our mind is right. If we see the church for what it is, one body, if we see the grace that we have in God for what it is, amazing. When our eyes look at God's mercy and the church the way that we are intended to do so, it will affect us at a heart level. And then that affectedness will have an affect in, in the way that we approach one another, the way that we serve one another. That creates a nurturing environment. It's not just using your gifts, but how we use our gifts that matters. It's ministry manners that is being highlighted. The word of life, the gospel, leads to a way of life. And that way of life, friends, is body life. So we offer our bodies to God, holy and acceptable to Him, as we offer our bodies to the body, as it were. That's the first way to get your mind right. Second, we need to see what genuine love looks like. This comes out in verses 9 to 16. Verse 9 is the header verse. It says, let love be genuine. All that follows shows us what this genuine love looks like. Not a put-on love, not a love that is simply driven by duty or external expectations, but a genuine, literally unhypocritical, is the word there, type of love toward one another. How do you know if your love is genuine? The thing I love about the Bible is we don't have to guess on these things. It gets spelled out for us in the verses that follow. At its core, it hates what is evil and holds fast to what is good. But what is good? We see what's good in what follows. What is God's will for your life? As you love the church, I want to highlight five things in five different verses. First, love is familial. Familial. We see this in verse 10. Literally, it reads, Regarding brotherly love, love one another dearly. Regarding brotherly love, love one another dearly. Or as the NIV says, be devoted to one another. The word for brotherly love is a Greek word that you know. It's Philadelphia. Philadelphia. The word for affection is philostorge. You can read about these different types of loves in C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves. But both words have the root word phila, which is love. But then the other part of the word, they smush two together, both have to do with family. Philadelphia, Adelphos, is brother, but Storge, this word for affection, is a family type of love. So this is where Paul starts. Do you want to have genuine love for one another? Then you need to see that at the foundation, it's all about family. 
The church is not only the body of Christ, it is the family of God. And a familial love is a devoted love like a parent would have for their children. A love that is devoted to nurture and to nourishing. But it's not mere duty if you think of parents. I hope this isn't the case. Are there any parents here that you are getting up in the night with your kids simply out of duty? I I, I would guess that sometimes duty is what drives you. Are you feeding them, protecting them, providing them simply because you're a parent? No. It is because they are dear to you to use the language that is here. It's because your affections are toward them. That doesn't mean that you always like them, but it means that your affections are toward them. They are dear to you, and that dearness is what drives your duty toward them. I wonder if the main area we need to get our mind right in the church is here. To see the church as a family. We have such a high view of the nuclear family in the evangelical church, and I think that is really, really good. But read Paul, and notice that all of the language that we think of for our our families, he applies to the church. It's as if he's saying, you need a little bit of a paradigm shift. The priority is actually the church. That is in no way to denigrate or to diminish the nuclear family. It's simply to elevate our view of the local church. This is what I think. What I think the scriptures teach, not just my opinion. Until we come to see our way of life in the church as family life. We will not make the progress that we need in discipleship. Without a familial culture of nurture and affection, our growth will be stunted. One aspect of this familial love is seen in the second part of verse 10. Outdo one another in showing honor. I think this means that we need to place others ahead of ourselves. Some commentators see a connection here with Philippians 2 that Ron read earlier where Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. I want you to see what I perceive to be an irony in verse 10. Look at it again. There is a call, the second part of it, to outdo one another. He's basically saying what we always, um, we, we say something different. We say it's not a competition in our family, right? Or in the church, it's not a competition. He's saying, no, it is a competition. You need to have ambition, but it's not selfish ambition. The irony is this. He's saying compete so vigorously so that you can put other people up on the winner's platform. Think, think of the Olympics. I mean, the, these 
Olympiads who are putting it all on the line so that they can be on the platform, so that they can get the gold. Paul is saying, compete with one another so that you can put others on that platform. This is what love looks like. Second, it's fervent. Verse 11, Paul says, literally, in zeal, don't be slothful. In your spirit, be fervent. In other words, let's go back to that football analogy. When people show up for a football game or they're just like, you know, whatever. You know, Mahomes just kind of walking through the thing, just, you know, whatever. I think that's how some of us show up for church. We need fervency. Zeal. And the task that we've been given of building up the body of Christ so that she might be conformed into the image of the glorious Christ. Does that excite you? That should be the ethos of the church. And then Paul goes on to say, and when you do that, when you serve like that, you're serving the Lord. You're offering your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him. Third, love is hopeful. I get this from verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Constant in prayer. I believe that when our mind is right, we will have a proper view of the future that awaits us in Christ. And if we've got a proper view of what lies ahead in the future, then when we encounter hard things now in the church, and we will, we will have the right perspective that will affect our attitude that will then be felt in the church. It will be joyful. You see? It will be led to pray for one another. The thing I want you to notice in verses 11 and 12 is these are qualitative measures, not quantitative. It's not simply what we do. That is important. It's being highlighted. But what I want you to notice this morning is that it's also how we do it. The manner of our ministry matters. It sets the tone for the church. It creates an environment that is conducive for nurturing others in the faith. When our minds are rightly fixed on what we have in Christ, when our minds are rightly fixed on who we are in the church, it will affect the way that we are toward one another. The fourth thing we learn about is that love is helpful. Helpful in meeting needs, which we see in verse 13, highlights two different needs. Financial needs and what I'm calling relational needs. The financial is clear enough that we are called to contribute to the needs of the saints. I know I'm a little Greek heavy in this sermon today, but I just want to highlight a couple more Greek words because I think they're helpful. That word translated as contribute, you know the Greek word of it. It's koinonia. It's where we get the word for fellowship. But the fellowship being described here is a very practical fellowship. It's a practical fellowship that contributes to the real financial needs of others in the church. This has always been the mark of the true church of Christ. Think of Acts. They, nobody had anything. Nobody was in need because they 
sold their possessions. They contributed to the needs of the saints. I have seen this in my own life. I've been the recipient of it. But as a pastor, I've had a bird's eye view of this happening within this body. And it really is what love looks like. Taking care of other people's financial needs, but also their relational needs. And this comes out in the second part of verse 13, showing hospitality. I don't like to be nitpicky on translations, but you may write out in the margin there, it's not showing, it's pursuing hospitality. It's not simply being open to being hospitable. It's going after hospitality. It's pursuing people that need hospitality and bringing them in. The Greek word, xenophilia. So it's another love word, but it's love of stranger. You've heard me say this many times before. Hospitality in the New Testament is not hosting your friends and family. It's not that that's bad or unbiblical. It's just not what the Bible's talking about when it talks about xenophilia, love of stranger, hospitality. Hospitality in the New Testament is creating space where a stranger can become a friend or a part of the family. Creating space, your time, your schedule, your home, where the stranger, somebody who is not friend or family, might become friend or family. In the ancient church, the reason this was so important, they didn't have hotels. They didn't have motels. They didn't have KOA camping sites. They didn't have any of that. And so traveling missionaries, traveling gospel workers, they had to be put up by other Christians. In our day today, We don't have that need. But let me put forward to you that we may even have a more urgent need in the church today than in that day. Clearly, I'm thinking of those in Moldova right now that are offering hospitality to Ukrainians. We see this in Europe, but I'm talking about in Wichita, in America, in the 21st century, in a culture where technology has made connection with millions of people possible like it has never been before and yet where we are the most isolated relationally that we've ever been before. Lonely. Without deep, meaningful relationships in our life, even in the church. There are people sitting in this church right now that feel like a stranger in this space. Maybe they appreciate the ministry that's being offered, but there is not a sense of belonging to a family. May I challenge you to see the church for what it is, to see the mercies of God for what they are, and to therefore do what God has done for you to create space in your home, in your schedule, for the stranger to become a friend and to become a part of this family that we call First Free. I have one more thing that I want to say about love in the church. We've seen that it's familial, 
I hope that's your main takeaway today. We've seen that it's fervent, that it's hopeful, that it's helpful. Lastly, we see that true love feels what others feel. I don't know any other way to put it, but it's emotionally engaged with other people. This is found in verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. We see something similar in 1 Corinthians 12 that I just want to draw your attention to. Paul says, members should care for one another. And then he goes on to say what this passage says. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So the reason I draw your attention to 1 Corinthians 12 is to say that when we weep with those who weep, when we rejoice with those who rejoice, it is a way of caring for one another. So how do we show this level of care? Only if our mind is right. I, I don't know any other way to do it. I mean, how can, you, how can you engage with somebody else's emotions if you don't see them as family? If you don't see them, I mean, if, unless you, I mean, I'm talking if you don't know them really well, if they're not your family, how can you engage with them at that level if you don't see them for what they are? Or maybe to put it more pointedly, if we don't see one another as more significant than ourselves, then we will never rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We will only be focused on our own emotions <laughs> if we're only focus on ourselves or, you know, my emotions are too much for me to bear. I don't have time to engage with others. But if we are focused on others, I believe that we will come to share in their joys as well as in their griefs. John Chrysostom early church father said, the harder of these two, what do you think it is? He said, the harder of these two is actually to rejoice with those who rejoice because we are so prone to envy and to jealousy. But if we come to get our mind right and to see the amazing riches and mercies that we have in Christ and that we have been justified by grace and that we have right standing in the eyes of God in a rich inheritance that awaits us, if that's the way we see the world, then when an unemployed person sees somebody else in the church who gets a promotion at work, they can go ahead and rejoice with them. Or when a family who's been unable to have children sees other families come on this platform to dedicate their children to the Lord, they can be genuinely excited for them and to engage in their joy. If our minds are fixed on the mercy of Christ, we can rejoice with those who rejoice and we can weep with those who weep. 
One of the practical ways that we can weep with those who weep is through attending funerals. It's probably not the most important way that we can weep with those who weep, but it's an application I want to draw your attention to because it's something the Lord's working on in my life, so I've been giving it some thought. Not just attending the funerals of those who are members of this church, but also the funerals of church members' loved ones. You track them with what I'm saying there? So not just if Noah dies, but when Noah's grandma dies, that we engage at that level as well. I confess that this is something I have not always been faithful to. I'm looking out at some of you that I know that you get this. But I've recently been challenged on my negligence. Somebody asked me a really great question that I want you to think about. What is the criteria that you use when you think about whether or not you'll attend that funeral that you've heard about? What is the criteria you use? The criteria I've been using is whether or not I knew that person well. So guess what kind of criteria that's about? Me. The criteria that Paul seems to be using is more when you think of somebody in the body, how important was that person that died to them? And how bad are they hurting? And how might you get involved in showing your love and concern in the midst of their hurt. I don't want to push it too far. I don't want to get legalistic, but that may be a different way to think about when people are hurting. It may be a way to get our mind right. Friends, if we're going to grow as disciples of Jesus Christ, We need to hear the truth of the gospel. We need the means of grace. We need solid food, good nutrition, the word. It's primary in this church. But we also need, in addition to good nutrition, a nurturing environment of love. Just like children who need that in their own families. We need that in the family of God. We need to grow here, verse 3. How are we going to do it? We've got to get our mind right. We've got to have renewed minds according to the word of God that see ourselves as recipients of of God's amazing love and mercy. That needs to become the dominant way we think about ourselves, like the tax collector who can barely lift his eyes up to heaven. He says, have mercy on me, a sinner. But then who sees other people in the church of Jesus Christ, as sinners who have been saved by grace 
as well as family. We're all adopted. We're all orphans who have been brought into the family of God by the love of God in Jesus Christ. That's true. That truth needs to change the way that we think about the church. The word of life should lead to a way of life in the body of Christ that is conducive to the growth of each member here. Let us pray that this would be increasingly the case and let us be reminded that this is your spiritual act of worship. Let us pray. Father, captivate our minds by your mercy so that we would see ourselves rightly, see others in the body rightly, and respond appropriately for your glory, for the good of the church. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.